0: The economy is crumbling, they say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolutions on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm seeing that a dunker. Playin Welcome the to Radical, the podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudder. My guest today is Shireen Ahmed. Shireen is a writer, public speaker and an award-winning sports activist, focusing on Muslim women in sports and the intersection of racism and misogyny in sports. She's also an inclusion and diversity consultant and a co-host of the feminist sports podcast Burn It All Down. Over the past week, she has been outspoken about the Black Lives Matter protest and has focused on the role of athletes in the protest, something we will also talk about today. Welcome to the podcast, Shireen. Thank you for having me. Before we turn our conversation to sports and politics, my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported?
1: I believe the first sports team was the Montreal Canadiens, the hockey team. Pretty much since infancy, I was encouraged to support them because my mother was such an avid fan.
0: And second, what is your favorite political song?
1: I love this question, Cass. Thank you so much. Um, I have a couple that I love. First one would be Third World by Immortal Technique. I'm not a country music person, but I'm not ready to play nice by the Dixie Chicks because I think that they're phenomenal and just the way that they do things is just a really great and the music resonates. When I was very little, I was a U2 fan and I didn't know what Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2 was about until I started to look into it. That was one of the first mainstream songs that people may not have realized or people in North America didn't know or were too ignorant to understand that it was about Irish resistance. And like it was basically speaking about the troubles and challenges and the oppression of Irish folks. So that is another one.
0: And finally, what is your favorite political book?
1: I think it would be easy to say that freedom is a constant struggle by Dr. Angela Davis. A lot of what I do, I always come back to Dr. Davis. So that's the one that I have by my bedside that I tell everybody to read. And now is more of a time than any. It's, it's I'm not going to say it's more relevant now, but we come more pivoting back to her words all the time, like I do anyway. It's like my Bible.
0: And that's why it's next to your bed, I guess.
1: <laughs> In addition to my Quran, but I'm just saying, you get the metaphor.
0: So much of your activism is focused on the role of Muslim women in sports. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us what drove you to that?
1: I have always been a sports person, like into sports, consuming sports, and very much an athlete. And I was driven to do this work because of my own life experience. I started wearing hijab when I was in uni, and I like to tell people I played left bench when I was at university, I played for the University of Toronto, and I also rode crew there. So the soccer experience was really hard because when I started to wear hijab, there was just no ruling by FIFA at the time that I could, but also that I couldn't. Because those of your listeners that are familiar with football know that FIFA are very stringent about any type of law or bylaw or policy. And so it wasn't just that I wasn't allowed. It wasn't that nor said that I could either. So I essentially ended up curtailing my football playing for quite a while. I got into it after my kids were born again by coaching and, and and helping out, and I was I was drawn back to the pitch. Whereas conversely, rowing crew they didn't have any rules about that, which also fascinated and interested me on like why was this regulated or was it regulated? But then later in two thousand and seven, I had four kids by then, but oh you know was it also really interested in writing and this kind of thing. I followed the story very closely. FIFA you know, held up a hijab ban. And it wasn't just a hijab ban, it applied to kippah, it applied to turbans for sick men also. So that is something that always kind of came back to me. I started a blog in 2011 or or 12. And I started writing because other than the only person I knew writing about politics and sport was Dave Zirin. But other than Dave, I didn't really see it anywhere. That wasn't in the academy, which I didn't have access to because I'm not an academic. I kept on with it. I you know, in some cases I did my own reporting independently. I published without compensation on my own blog. Then I got in contact with a woman, an academic named Sartaj Saglikoglu, who is probably one of my first and foremost mentors who was doing her PhD in cultural anthropology at Cambridge University. And she was curating this blog for which I could provide content and hone my writing skills and it was fantastic. And she, she literally always encouraged me to look critically. At things, which has shaped very much the way I write, so got in it that way, and then you know, just like everybody else, you know started off using Twitter, um, engaging in conversations, connecting with people and I know some people are very frustrated with Twitter and it's exhausting, but i've been very lucky you know there are spaces of Twitter that are terrible, but I've been really lucky with social media for starting with my blog and then you know pivoting to actual paid journalism, which is it's really nice to be paid for the work you do i'm not going to lie.
0: Talking about Twitter, the jump to Islamophobia is pretty easy. Is Islamophobia a big problem in contemporary sports? Is it mainly a European phenomenon, a football phenomenon, or is it much broader?
1: If we look at the roots of what Islamophobia is, it's based in xenophobia and racism. So those systems exist around the world everywhere. I think what I've explored in my work is the obsession with men to want to talk, and society in general, not just men, to want to talk and opine about what Muslim women wear. Like, should they wear a scarf? What does a scarf mean? Like I'm pretty sure women who literally create children in their bodies and birth them are capable of picking out an outfit let's be very simple about the way we think about this. Women don't need um, instruction from men. If women are guided spiritually to choose their clothes, that's wonderful. They should have that option, but therein I underlie option. There should be choices. I've always thought about how forcing women out of clothing is as violent as forcing them into it, in that it's about control and it's violent. I think about these things a lot and how that sort of relates to sport. And in 2016, I was really struck by something, was that when I was doing work around Muslim women in sport covering, because Ibtihaj Muhammad was the first woman to wear hijab to represent the United States, and she's a black Muslim woman. But when I did some digging in my work, because Doa El-Rabashi, who is an Egyptian beach volleyball player, was the first woman to wear hijab on the beach court, I looked into the rules by the FIVB, which is the International Federation for Volleyball, and it wasn't only that Muslim women were being written of and the rules about what they could wear. I didn't know that the width of the band, the bikini band and the sports bra or bikini top were mandated. I didn't know this. You know, I went down the rabbit hole quickly of looking for other things and called on my academic friends. Hey, I need access to this. Can you find me this? And I have some great collaborators in the academy who will send me papers that I don't have access to. What ends up happening is I realized that this wasn't just about Muslim women in this way. It was about misogyny. It was about control of women's bodies, period. And Muslim women very much fall into that category.
0: So you focus primarily on Muslim women Is there also Islamophobia towards Muslim men in sports?
1: Like I said, they don't necessarily have the same clothing requirements or options or whatever, but definitely because it's rooted in racism and xenophobia, as I said. Of course, it'll all come back to that. I think that we see a shifting of also the way that the information is manipulated. You'll see people arguing that cases of violence and Islamophobia in Liverpool have been on the decrease since Mohamed Salah and Saudi Omani got there, who are their two of the most notable, and racialized Muslim players. So you've got Liverpool, which has historically not been a place that's been welcoming (laughs) to Muslims in some capacity. And there you are, you know, there's songs about them, there's chants in the stadium. But I feel very uncomfortable about that because the weight of dismantling Islamophobia should not be on the shoulders of two racialized Muslim players. It's just not how it should work. And that people are applauding this is, I find, extremely problematic. I think also the ways in which society engages with Muslim men is a system of Islamophobia. They'll be labeled as French, but their identity as Muslims, you know, African Muslims or from the Middle East, are erased. perfect example is the 2018 World Cup winners, the French team. huge part of the team are, in fact, Afro-French Muslim players. But that identity is often masked to say, you know, we're French, vive la France kind of thing.
0: That reminds me of the great Netflix documentary, Les Bleus, une autre histoire de France or The Blues, Another History of France, which shows how French society embraces multiculturalism when the multicultural French men football team won the 1998 World Cup, but then responded with racism during the disastrous 2010 campaign. Or of the sad but striking statement by former German national international Mesut Utzil, who once said, I'm German when we win, an immigrant when we lose. So focusing on gender and race in sports, most sports journalists are white and male. In what way does that affect sports coverage?
1: I'll speak for North America, specifically United States and Canada. Like the industry isn't almost 90% white, able-bodied, cis men. And it's very difficult to argue that you'll find a wide variety of lenses with which to look at something when the demographic is not at all represented in a way that reflects the community. And I'm not saying that, like, every single white man has the same opinion. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that the lens and the life experience doesn't give way to offer different perspectives. That's what I'm saying, because that is a fact. And the way in which media has also been conditioned to write reflects the state of capitalism and white supremacy. Like, just this morning, a friend of mine who's an Indigenous writer in Toronto, his name is Jesse Wentee, and he said media in both the u s and canada are also creations from within colonial states and while they may confront power occasionally they tend to uphold the underpinning of those states Namely, capitalism and white supremacy, which makes them ill-equipped or unwilling to appropriately cover movement that directly challenge those things, which is what we are seeing now. And I think that this idea that young journalists in school are often taught to, well, you have to be objective, you have to be this. I've never met a journalist that doesn't bring their life experience into their work, and to argue that is unfair. And I think it's ridiculous. We all bring a piece of bias towards our work when we're working. So That's just the reality of it. But this idea of you have to be objective, you have to do this was literally a shield by gatekeepers to tell either racialized or marginalized, whether it was queer, whether it's disabled, not to bring themselves and in, into a pine, which I think is extremely problematic.
0: Yeah, and I think this ties into a broader discussion about what neutral means, right? And neutral generally means the norm, and the norm means white, male, cis. And when identity politics is everything that is another identity than white, male, cis. Which brings me to athletes and political activism, particularly with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement, which Mm -hmm. has received support from black athletes from Mm -hmm. the very beginning. some people trace this back to black protests in the civil rights era, notably the iconic stand of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at their medal ceremony in the Olympic Stadium in Mexico City in 1968, Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. both raised a black glove fist during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem. Is there a solid tradition of political protest by black athletes, or is it more episodic?
1: That's a great question. And I think that from what I've learned from my co-host, Dr. Amira Davis, Athlete activism from black athletes has been an ongoing thing from the time that they've been coming to sports and been integrated into sports. It's always been there, whether it's been not necessarily in the same way right? But there's not one way to be an activist. There's not one way to protest. Amira has written about Wyoming Ataya. She's written about many, many different Black women athletes and their contributions. And I think this is really important. And there was no social media back then. But, you know, starting with even pre-dating 68 with Dr. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, and then Peter Norman, who was the Australian runner beside them, what he did in terms of allyship, So I think that there's many different ways to look at history and get examples from this and say, this is how it can be done. That's how it can be done. There's many examples throughout history, but I think the important thing is to look at that, which is where academics and sport historians and sociologists can work together with mainstream media to be able to provide an opportunity for people to learn about this stuff. Because I've been really wowed on Burn It All Down with the way Dr. Brenda Elsie and Dr. Davis have really contributed to providing context for the discussions we're having having now because if you take away the historical context you're left with very little content and i've learned this so in terms of what we're seeing with black athletes it also comes to a place where i think it's undeniable to say that at this point with social media black athletes are executing more agency over what they have to say and that is a fact that people are feeling far more comfortable it's a lot easier to get on your phone and to share something via instagram or via twitter the words aren't controlled the way that they used to be you know what i mean And I think that we're seeing patterns in this and in different ways all around the world in different communities, like it suits itself differently in different places.
0: And it might just be my narrow perception, but I see most athlete activism in just two sports at the moment, basketball and football, not surprisingly, two sports dominated by black athletes. And I mean, American football here. Has there been significant activism within baseball, hockey and soccer or other sports?
1: Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, my lens is always on the global and we could start at tennis. Serena Williams, she's written about her experience in a racist health system when the time her daughter Olympia was born. You've got Coco Goff, who is so young, but participating in in protests where she is. Naomi Osaka is doing the same thing. Caitlin Oyashi is a gymnast, a former gymnast with UCLA, you know, highly decorated in the NCAA. She is a biracial gymnast, identifies as black. She'd been talking about her experiences. The list goes on and on. Wherever there is an experience of a black athlete, you'll have some form possibly in some way of this. We just saw the opening of the Premier League football, like proper football, not American football, in Europe where every single player took a knee when the whistle blew. And that's unprecedented. So absolutely. And you've seen Marcus Rashford of Manchester United, who has been talking about poverty and hunger and how Boris Johnson and the UK government wanted to shut down programs that helped kids with nutrition. And he talked about how how he relied on those. So there's wonderful ways and different ways in which athletes are doing this. There are actionable steps being taken about athletes in those spaces.
0: Yeah, and I was also reminded of the whole situation at NASCAR. Oh, um, of course. Which is particularly (laughs) remarkable. When you mentioned the Premier League, Mm -hmm. I also wonder how real, how authentic is this? It's a league which by and large is just multi-billion dollar company. That kind of mandates that teams play with Black Lives Matter jerseys Uh as the Bundesliga play with Black Lives Matter bands around their arms. Doesn't this all become more commercial? Isn't this about brand rather than about the cause?
1: I mean, you could argue that capitalist systems are taking over and taking over a brand. Yeah, that's a that's a great point that we talk about a lot. And on the show, there is a wariness of people to want to do this. Is this for social media likes like we saw, you know, looking like you're participating in Black Lives Matter when you're just really there for an Instagram post? I get it. But I think that we have to be careful because there's not just one way to be a part of this. Like for people that are disabled or immunocompromised, because we're still in a global pandemic, it may not be possible for people to go out, it may not be possible for people to attend. And I think we have to not be ableist in the way that we approach activism. For some people, they're not able to physically go out or for whatever reason, so they donate. And I mean, I think that we can't minimize the impact of what financial does because the state that we're in, the powers that be, have the most power and privilege and money if we're working within, I know it sounds terrible to say this, but we're working from within a capitalist system, then, you know, you fight with whatever tools you have. And money is definitely one of them. There was the Minnesota Legal Fund. They were looking for like $200,000 to give up bailout money. And they ended up with $5 million of donations. And then they finally said, please don't give us any more money. Please, we're a very small organization, but please donate to these places. And That can't be overstated, that donating, not just your time, not just your sharing, your money is also your time, all all these things, but they're all very important. So I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic about this. And to be honest, Cass, I've seen people start having conversations about race that I never would have imagined. Like you said, NASCAR, did I expect that they would say we don't want a Confederate flag? Because the first thing I think of when I think of NASCAR is a Confederate flag. So the single most symbolic object that connects my brain to NASCAR is gone, which is phenomenal when you think about it. But then there's also hockey players in the NHL have been talking about this. And, you know, another example is JT Brown, who lifted his fist, who was, you know, given a fine, but... Now that we're having this time of pandemic has also stopped the world and possibly there's a lot of reflection and inflection in this moment. Because if you told me that NASCAR and white hockey players from the NHL would be on the forefront of discussions and, you know, opening and unlearning, I would not have believed you.
0: And this also reminds me how much of the media coverage of it is really still focused on a few high profile, often black male athletes like LeBron James, for example. Mm-hmm. Whenever he tweets, it mm-hmm. gets massive stories, whereas whenever actually female athletes even suspend their career for activism, it will be a side story, mm-hmm. too much of the coverage. This is a good segue to another question I have. Most U.S. leagues are actually U.S.-Canadian leagues. Have, right. have the Black Lives Matter protest also played a major role in Canada and have Canadian athletes become active too?
1: Yeah, I think there's this misunderstanding that racism and systems of oppression, racism, misogyny, homophobia stop at the border. I don't know why this is. Borders are man-made, clearly. White supremacy is very much a system in Canada. And there is a black writer named Desmond Cole who talks about this all the time. And I think it's really important not to conflate that anti-black police brutality doesn't happen here because it very much does. The same week that George Floyd died... There was a woman named Regis Paquet who fell to her death in police presence. And the Special Investigations Unit is still investigating. So there's not a lot of reporting on it because it's very quiet. That happens here. Absolutely that happens here. You know, just the other day in the region in which I live, there was an elderly man who's South Asian who was shot by police after his family called the non-emergency line to say he was in crisis. How is this possible? So brown and black men are getting killed. Brown and black folks are definitely in danger here. Toronto is supposedly a very safe city, but that still happens. People are enraged about this. And it's the impunity with which this happens, which is the most upsetting. You know, BIPOC, so black, indigenous, people of color, and those athletes from those communities are often on the front lines of what has to be done. So you've got Francoise Abenda, who is a Canadian tennis player who lives in Montreal. She's been at protests. The majority of Canadian athletes, many of them, are white. But you've got P.K. Subin who plays for the New Jersey Devils in the NHL. He's been doing a lot of commentary about this. I mean, the Toronto Raptors have been unequivocally outspoken throughout the pandemic about a lot of this. They released a statement about George Floyd and police brutality. And I think, you know, their general manager, and of course, is Messiah Jerry, who is a black man, can, he's African. So, I mean, his understanding and the way he'll approach this will obviously be different and really impactful. So there are notable Canadian athletes, one of which is Sarah Nurse. She's a black hockey player. So she exists in a space because women's hockey is very, very much white. So there are people, but again, the weight of this very much falls on their shoulders to lead the discussions. Yeah, they are unwillingly thrown into positions of leadership. Bilkis kadir Qadir is one of the women who was really important in pressing FIBA to erase their hijab ban. And she told me once upon a time that she just wanted to play basketball, but suddenly she became a spokesperson and an activist, and she didn't necessarily want that, but that's what she had to end up doing. And she's a black Muslim woman, so very much you find black athletes and racialized athletes having to lead the discussions in these spaces. And it's not necessarily something they want to do, but they're compelled to do. Just yesterday, Natasha Cloud, a WNBA player, said that she would be stepping off the court away from the WNBA in order to pursue full-time activism and advocacy. And she follows Renee Montgomery of the Atlanta Dream, who also followed Maya Moore, who left in order to work specifically with Black prisoners, cases of injustice and judicial you know, inequality. There's a precedent for this happening really fast. It's remarkable, actually.
0: So we're coming to an end, and I would like to ask you, what is the most common misperception about athlete activism?
1: That it's new, that it started with Colin Kaepernick. No disrespect at all to Colin Kaepernick. like He is phenomenal in mentioning and naming the work of people that he's read and followed and been inspired by. But it's not his fault. It's the way that it's been covered. So again, we get, it's like a cycle. We get back to that discussion on media. Because they will frame it as if Colin Kaepernick in 2016 and 17 came up with this. No, he didn't. And he and Eric Reed had done a lot of reading. Eric Reed had an absolutely beautiful op ed for the New York Times, I believe, just explained where they got to that point and how they got there. So it's not something that's new. I would encourage people to read up on histories in different communities about what advocacy looks like. It may not be written up, but I mean, they can find it in the work of sports historians and such, you know, like Jack Johnson in boxing and what that looked like. And one of the greatest athlete activists is undeniably one of the greatest athletes of the century was Muhammad Ali. So that's exactly what athlete activism is.
0: Thank you very much for coming on the show, Shireen.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: If you want to know more about Shireen Ahmed, you can go to the website www.sherinahmed.com or follow her on Twitter at underscore Sherin Ahmed underscore. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me it, give me a chance to explain, you see, come up to Portman Mill. he went with Danny Baker. See you, silly disco songs, and reading Melody Baker. I see him down the bunker, playing with his beard. No wonder the test capital so turned out a little weird.